In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today is uh, 80 years since the death of Edith Stein, killed in the gas chambers of Auschwitz along with thousands of other Jews. She was uh, a very impressive and intense woman with a real drive for life. If you just look at the photos of her as a Carmelite, you can see this intense look and these penetrating eyes. It is said that she was uh, always an overachiever, the youngest of 11 children, born in 1891. As you know, she studied under Edmund Husserl and eventually converted to Catholicism. And it was eventually known by her religious name, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. There's a very touching moment in the 1920s after she had converted, she goes and tells her mother. She's there in the living room with her mother, and she says, Mom, I'm, I'm now Catholic. And both women just burst out in tears in that moment. She had a, a deep love for the truth. And this love for the truth is also behind her love for the cross and her deep humility a humility that for her meant walking in the truth. That's what humility is. There's a very touching moment also when she was at home and her little niece, who was a little little child, came to her and said to her, Aunt Edith, what is namaphalomology? Or something like that. And she said, oh, you mean phenomenology? Oh, yeah, are you sure you want to know what phenomenology is? Yes, I want to know what phenomenology is, <laughs> or however she pronounced it. And she took her little niece by the hand, and she went to the other side of the living room where there was a piano, and she brought some cookies with her. And she says, well, this piano right now is only a piece of furniture with some cookies on it. But it converts itself into a piano when I open the lid and I start playing. That is its hidden potential. That's what gives it life, she said. But who gives it life? Who gives it that life? She said, I do because... I know that it can produce music. I know that. But that's why she said, with my consciousness, with your consciousness of this fact, 
it can become a beautiful playing piano. But without that consciousness, it is, she said, it just remains a piece of furniture with a piece of cookies on it. That was her simple explanation of what phenomenology was to her niece. She said, I don't know if I helped her much, but... But that's true, that she saw the hidden potential just as we see the hidden potential in our daily work. It's not just work. It's work, but behind that is an instrument of our sanctification and the sanctification of others. And Edith Stein saw that hidden potential behind the tragedies that affected her people during those years. She saw the hidden potential of the cross, which was not just a piece of wood. It was an instrument of salvation. And so in her life, she developed really a deep sense of mission and purpose in her life. And as you know, she eventually had to take refuge in the Carmel of Echt in Holland, together with her sister Rose. And uh, eventually, the Gestapo did their research and they came on August 2nd, 1942, to the convent of Echt. And... The story says that it was a Sunday afternoon as the Carmelite sisters were gathered for meditation, just as we are gathered here. The doorbell rang, and there were two members of the SS that demanded that she and her sister come out within ten minutes. Despite the sisters' protests, there was no choice in the matter. Why is there no choice? She said, they told her, well, she is non-Aryan. She's a non-Aryan Catholic religious. And the Dutch bishops had protested in those years or those weeks the treatment of the Jews. So now this was a reprisal against those protests and just the fact that she was non-Aryan. Einstein came out ready to go, dressed in her full Carmelite habit. But her sister, Rose, was too afraid to come out. And I have always found particularly touching one of, the, one of the last phrases she has known or been recorded from her. She said, Come, Rose, we must now go for our people. The tone, the, the tenderness with which she said those words led Rose to come out. They dumped them both into a truck, and within a few days they were in another concentration camp, which was very brutal. And they were now separating the Catholic Jews, who were rounded up, separated from the rest of the prisoners. And among those, there were also like a dozen members of religious communities, and one of the one of the people there was a Jewish businessman whose name was Julius Markan, and he was somehow put in charge of the barracks where these Jews were placed. And because of that, he, he and his wife were later spared, and he was able to give a testimony to how those last days were. And so now this is the next day, and among the prisoners who were brought in on, well, it was actually August 5th, St. Benedicta of the Cross, Edith Stein, she just stood out 
for her great calmness, her composure. There was great distress in the barracks. There was this, this new stir that was caused by the new arrivals. It was just indescribable, the fear and the panic that was present there. But either Stein, it was said, was just like an angel going from one woman to the next, calming them, helping them, comforting them. In fact, many of the women were so numb with fear that they couldn't even take care of their children. They were just like, like paralyzed. It was like a paralysis that came over them. But Edith Stein took care of those children. She combed them. She removed the lice from their head. And she was, this fellow described, she was no, nothing less than an angel of compassion. She sought to alleviate the sufferings of others who were, who were just in a state of panic. Indeed, she was an image of compassion. In fact, she had written about empathy. That was, I think, her, her doctoral thesis. And now that knowledge, that intellectual and philosophical knowledge she had about empathy was now being fully lived out. The next morning they were hauled under cargo trains and overloaded. Many people died of just pure suffocation because there were so many people packed into these trains. And they were told that they were going east. For the Carmelites back home, when they heard this, they understood that to go east was like, kind of like to go back to the new Jerusalem, to go to heaven. It's as though she had consciousness of going east, going to heaven. And, uh, but for the Nazi authorities, this was just business as usual. They were just like, they weren't even, you know, they weren't even affected by what they were doing. The, the people were treated like chattel. When they arrived in Auschwitz, they were led into the showers and hydrogen cyanide immediately suffocated all of them. They all died, choked to death. There's a beautiful quote here from some years before, 1939, where she wrote her a note to the mother prioress. She said, Dear Mother, please... Will your reverence allow me to offer myself to the heart of Jesus as a sacrifice of propitiation for true peace that the dominion of the Antichrist may collapse, if possible, without a new world war? I would like it granted that this day that was Passion Sunday, that this day, because it is the twelfth hour. She was very conscious of what was happening to her people, and she offered her life as a sacrifice. And she had this beautiful sense of empathy, beautiful sense of compassion, and at the same time, a deep serenity to her attitude in life. Because uh, she had already died to herself. That was like the source of her, her serenity, her peace. She was, she was already dead to her own needs, her own emotions in some way, and also because she was deeply, deeply humble. And so we ask her now, today on 
her feast day, at the same time her anniversary of her death, the anniversary of the day in which she was suffocated in those gas chambers, day of her martyrdom. We ask her now to intercede for us so that we also may be humble. We also may be able to sacrifice our life and also that we really live out this deep empathy that might be etched in our soul, engraved in our soul, entrenched in the way we see others. A deep empathy, a deep compassion. But we can only really do that. This real compassion, this empathy can only really happen if we are humble. If we are deeply forgetful about ourselves. That's how you can you know, really care about what's happening to the next guy, the guy in front of you. If you somehow die to yourself and are less concerned about your own needs and cares. You know, we say what our Father taught us, the spiritual communion every day. We're saying in that prayer something that our Father wanted to be deeply etched in our soul and was deeply etched in his soul and his mind. We make our desires known to God when we say the spiritual communion that we receive, Lord, may I receive you with the purity, humility, and devotion with which your Most Holy Mother received you, with the spirit and fervor of the saints. So today we're going to receive communion. We can ask, look, I want to receive you with the purity, humility, and devotion, with the spirit and fervor of Edith Stein, with her empathy, with her compassion. Because purity, humility, and devotion, those are the three things we ask for in the, in the spiritual community. But they're intimately intertwined, they're intimately connected. And what makes them so interconnected? What makes purity, humility, and devotion so, sort of, almost, you could say, cut from the same fabric? It's our love for God. Our, our love that is at the heart because love engenders or brings about humility. It brings about devotion. It brings about purity. We could say that humility is the daughter of charity always and humility always goes with her mother. It has been said famously, although right now I don't remember who said it, but it's a famous saying or thing, that, that humility is the dwelling place of uh, charity. It's a dwelling place. You think, why, Lord, do I lack humility? Why do I have these outbursts of pride or these outbursts of vanity? Maybe I just have to I love more and then humility will dwell within that charity that I might be missing the lack of love of God, the lack of love of others. It's as though charity can't really survive in a soul that is not humble. Maybe that's more it. You see, humility is like a is like a dwelling place for charity. So it's like a grounding, like a like a seed bed. And there, okay, there charity can grow if we are humble. If we are humble, charity needs a strong foundation. It needs a strong place to rest and to dwell. 
not something kind of decorated with appearances that merely looks nice. I think that's why Edith Stein had that compa- compassion, that, that empathy, but she was deeply rooted in humility. That's what also led to her love for the truth, her humility. We can say that we love God, even that we love our neighbor. But has this truly engendered true humility in me? If I am truly humble, a humble soul, like Edith Stein, this will sustain me through the crisis of my life, through my setbacks, through the moments in which I'm not recognized or in which I'm kind of forgotten. How do I get through those moments in which my professional standing is kind of put aside? Or, you know, it could happen. My opinion is not taken into account. Or worse, if I somehow am neglected or nobody cares about my opinion. Doesn't care. Or especially if I suffer a professional setback. This is hard to come back from, especially at a certain age. We should pray for our brothers that are, that are laid off or that might be let go from their jobs. Maybe ostensibly it is said that while I was laid off because of the economic situation, there are cutbacks in the company, but everybody probably thinks, well, why wasn't that guy laid off? <laughs> you know, or well, this other guy, you know, and we, we could easily, a person could easily think about, but well, I'm not worthy, I'm not good, and, and then pride wells up, and uh, it can be very difficult to take. Comparisons start, and it's the upheaval that happens in a soul that still has the remainders of pride in him and her. The other day, coming back from the excursion from Seattle, we listened to a meditation on the podcast. It was the feast of the Curé d'As, the Saint Jean-Marie Vianney. And uh, one of the stories there that was recounted, it was a story I'd heard before, but it just uh, you know, rung out uh, in a special way about how a number of priests in his diocese wrote a petition to the bishop asking that the curé d'Ars be removed from the parish of Ars because he was considered useless and ignorant. So the letter was sent around to the different parishes and the priest would write their name, the petition, you know, they would write their name, and it was signed, it was signed, and it would be sent off to the next guy. And somehow, by accident, this letter ended up on the desk of the curé d'Ars, you know. And he saw this whole list of names, and uh, what did he do? He signed it himself and sent it off to the bishop, you know. He said, I agree, I'm useless and, and ignorant. That was his reaction. How can that not be a reaction of profound humility. I mean, you know, he clearly had a dearer life. I mean, not that that's the central moment of his life, but but it's certainly a proof that he was he had a dearer life and he had humility. The foundations were there. 
Like Joseph Pieper said, humility is not primarily an attitude that pertains to the relationships of man to man. It is an attitude of man before the face of God. It's, it's not principally his attitude, Kuridas' attitude towards his other colleagues who maligned him or, or disdained him because really he was ultimately more successful than, he, than they were. He could have gotten very angry with that letter. He could have justified what he was doing. He could have find, found reasons why he was not useless and ignorant, that they were wrong. But he does not seem to have been hurt by this. He does not seem to have been wounded or, or resentful. He didn't end up resentful at all. It means he had a deep connection all, already. It's as though he was already nourished and watered and, and strengthened by his interior relationship with God our Lord, with God his <coughs> Father. He was deeply connected. So those other things were, were well, they, they couldn't have been easy to take, but they, they were not hard for him to, to sort of resist the ancient Greeks extolled, extolled the virtue of magnanimity, but that's what Joseph Pieper says, is that they were not able to truly grasp the true meaning of humility because they lacked, he says, a concept of creation ex nihilo, that creation came from nothing. God created everything out of nothing. And that idea that we are created, you and I, also, in some way, we're, well, creation was created out of nothing, but you know, we have no justification, like just for our own birth. Who asked you to be born? Right? You did not ask yourself to be born. And uh, when we understand that we are in the world because God has wanted us, God has created us, we know that we are just entirely from God. That, that can help to make us more humble. That everything we have, we have received not only our talents, our abilities, our intellect, but just our very creation, the very fact that we exist. We may sometimes be tempted to think we're smarter than so-and-so, that we start to compare, and, and, but even the fact that you have a brain, that you're able to understand this or that. You were just given that. It's a gift. Just as our vocation is a divine gift. And as we let this virtue of humility develop, it can lead us also, like Edith Stein, to be like an angel among others. She was like an angel. She had such compassion. She had such care for others. She had such, such serenity. And that's why humility is, of course, grounded in our relationship with God, but also in our attitude with regards to others, the real attitude. We can ask our Lord now in the presence of God, is my attitude towards others one that could be described as humble? Is it a well-anchored humility? 
is am I able to see the love of God, see God in others, hidden? Just like Edith Stein was able to see the piano in that piece of furniture, we have to see God in others, whatever their virtues or qualities or, or background may be. And that reverence for God hidden in every soul leads us with this ambition to serve. We're really serving God. We're serving the person because they, they're, they're, they come interconnected, of course, but we, are, we somehow find ourselves serving God and reverencing God and caring for God in some way, God our Father, that we see hidden in that person in front of us. Do you and I reverence others like that? Do you see God in others? Or is it somehow just too obtuse for me? I just see defects. I just see this person in the way he is. We can go to, to our Lord when he began his public ministry in Nazareth. When he, the first thing he did was he read in the synagogue. And he read from Isaiah where the prophet announces the coming of the Lord who will free his people from their afflictions. This is sort of a prophetic passage referring to the coming of the Messiah. And he's reading there in the synagogue and is meant to be understood as a moment of joy and, and, and hope about the coming of the Messiah. But the people listening at that moment in the synagogue there were quite superficial, quite maybe narrow-minded in their pride, and they somehow felt hurt that Jesus, their own fellow townsman, had not worked in Nazareth the wonders and, and the miracles that he had done elsewhere. That's what they were thinking of. They kind of presumed a special entitlement, since he was from Nazareth, that, that, that he do the miracles here. They were more interested in, I don't know, wonders and, and healings and stuff, that they kind of demand that he perform those miracles to satisfy their own vanity and, and their interest in these wonders, not to change their hearts. And that's the moment where he walks through the crowd. They, they try to throw him off the cliff. Um, it's as though they were angry because he was chosen by God without their permission. It's as though they were saying, okay, look, it's fine that you perform miracles here. We love miracles. But do not try to lecture us about the Messiah. Because we know that you're only the son of Joseph, who's a mere artisan. With somebody like Joseph, one of the most holiest, saintly people ever, St. Joseph, they just thought, well, he's just an artisan. He's just an artisan. They're just like, whatever. Of course, they didn't even see the value of artisan, a, a craftsman, a workman, uh, you know, to have any value. But Jesus' attitude here is quite remarkable. He, and... Uh, he, he understands that their problem wasn't a lack of faith, but the, just an excess of pride. Lord, help me to get rid of my pride so that I don't feel uh, so vulnerable to being hurt by attitudes and the circumstances of my life. Destroy any, any poison of pride that is in my life and... Uh, 
ask, I ask now for the intercession of the martyr, St. Edith Stein, St. Benedict of the Cross, to help me intercede for me so that I really be a humble soul, that I have that compassion, that I can also see God in others. For that I have to die to myself, like you, Edith Stein, died also to yourself. As this very unique and beautiful gift that I died to myself to be humble, truly grounded, a, a grounding for charity and love of God. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you all to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.